Welcome to this podcast series produced by the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee of the University of Edinburgh in collaboration with Teaching Matters. We will hear from different academics at the university talking about what decolonizing the curriculum means for them and how they have put this into practice in their learning and teaching or research. They also share some findings and readings they have found useful. The hope is that the podcast will provide ideas, stimulate thinking and dialogue, as well as building a network of academics in the university who are interested and engaged in offering an anti-racist, a decolonized and inclusive curriculum. If you're interested in contributing a podcast to this series, please get in touch with Emily Senner or Johanna Halton, co-conveners of the Race Equality and Anti-Racist Subcommittee. To get in touch with Emily, email her at emily.senna at ed.ac.uk and to contact Johanna, email johanna.halton at ed.ac.uk. Thank you for listening. David, thank you very much for taking part in this podcast series. Can I ask um, you to maybe say a little bit about your work and which college you're in? Okay, so my name is David Cluth and I'm Director of Teaching for the MBCHB and, and also Head of Medical Education in the College of Medicine and Very Medicine. So, uh, and alongside that, I'm a consultant nephrologist at the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh. In terms of decolonizing the curriculum, how do you understand that um, phrase? This has been quite a journey, that phrase, I think, with with, with medicine. I, I actually remember very vividly the first time someone brought it to us. It was Jenny Harton, who's one of my colleagues in the college. And, and, and actually, I was thinking, oh, there's no issue here for us. This is all straightforward. It's medicine. We don't have this problem. So I think what it what it's meant for me is it's been about looking at what I've not been looking at, what we've not been looking at, our blind spots, I think is what it is. And I think it's also opened up, for us, it's about listening to students. The students are the people who have seen the gap. We haven't seen it, they have. And most of the good examples have come from students pointing out things to us and then leading on things. And I think that's been the biggest part of it. I then spent quite a lot of time, particularly over the latter half of last year, probably around Christmas time, when I kind of tried to reach a sort of point of what we're going to do at a really sort of practical level. And I think that what really that led me to to think about was what, what did I want from this? So it was a, I wanted it to be more than just about relating to sort of ethnicity and race, which is very, was very much a focus, I think, at the beginning of the year, but actually that it was when we got away, when we had a, our curriculum, our programme and the experience here for the students, they would be better informed on the influence of ethnicity, gender, disability, identity, culture, and class uh, on health and well-being um, uh, as well. And, and, and I think that in, living in Edinburgh, which, which does not have a, the same degree of diversity as, say, from London, where I originally came from, or other parts of England, but we had to recognise our students were going to work across the UK. We were training doctors to work across the UK, so they had to be adequately prepared to treat patients from all backgrounds across the UK, even in areas when we wouldn't be particularly um, have necessarily see that here. So making sure that when they entered the foundation program, they had that confidence. I think also what I what it's what it what it has become to me is actually that it increases the student sense of belonging, not just to the university or the medical school, but actually to the wider NHS. That so the NHS is a is a organisation that represents them, that they are part of, and they can feel comfortable in. And and I think the final part of it is really where it kind of that bit about the students that this is something we do in 
in partnership. It's a partnership with students. I think I probably started it with an idea that somehow the faculty had to in, had to work out everything that needs to be done. But actually what we wanted was actually this should be about a partnership. And I think that's now become a sort of plan that we extend beyond that, that you start looking at all of these elements. These are these are, you know, smart young people who have, have a perspective that we, as, as, as certain academics do not have, use that expertise, use those insights to help make a better programme in, in all aspects. Before I ask you to go to examples, uh, maybe one or two examples of how you put this into practice in terms of teaching, can you say a bit about how how have you enthused, inspired, brought your colleagues along, or perhaps the students have done that as well? Colleagues are interested to hear new perspectives and there are things they haven't thought about and haven't realised that the way that they, we've been educated and the way that we've practised has led to blind spots appearing in our understanding. Um, so I think that it's been about doing that and and, and being gentle with it. I think that the, the, the initial reaction is exactly the same initial reaction that I probably have, which is one of feeling defensive about it. And we need not to be. We need to recognise, as, as I've said many times, colleagues, be prepared to be challenged, be prepared to challenge back. It's a two-way street, but don't be worried about it. It's something that that's probably the approach I've taken and providing it as a very practical experience, something that will just slowly, it's, it's a, it will be an evolution of a programme. It will change, it will constantly iterate. You'll do it and it won't be quite right. So you'll add more, you'll change things and just recognise this is something that you go forward with it. It will slowly evolve to being a more inclusive curriculum. And there are some specific things, immediate things that we can talk about you need to do, but generally it'll be slow changes you're making as you look at areas. And those areas will be pointed out to you by students and frequently are. Thank you very much. Now, I'm very interested in some examples of how you have seen um, be, or been able to put this into practice in the curriculum. So um, the, the main bit of it was actually just getting it into some kind of form of work that people need to do. So essentially that was a, as it ended up being a kind of policy document. Actually, we're discussing it again next week as part of our programme management, say this is what you need to do. And effectively, that comes down to asking all of the clinical modules to to essentially to audit their content and then also it's not to look at it what where you're covering these topics have you covered it enough is there any other areas you need to do because i think it's from the outside isn't you know yes i have areas of expertise i can specifically mention and give you practical examples of it in my own area of nephrology but you know you, you need to, the only the subject experts can say is this an area so if you've got something you know a good example would be issues around outcomes in maternity for example so that means that you're going to those colleagues and looking at how you're covering maternity outcomes for people of color what is your how is that topic covered and and, and then the principle within that was saying, burrow down so you, you've surfaced it adequately. So don't just give here it is, but surface the topic so that students can understand what we know and also what we don't know. So being clear that, that a very important concept for doctors to understand is uncertainty. Actually, complexity and uncertainty is a theme within the programme. And you have to understand that things are complicated and also what you don't know and therefore what needs further work. So the first part of it was about laying that out. And that's the piece of work that's going on as we speak. There were some really quick areas that need to be addressed uh, immediately. And that particularly was around representation of skin tones in various images across the programme. And again, it's, some of that's practical. So in dermatology, uh, I liaised with the consultant there, Claire Leach. She did a fantastic um, 
project which was done with the students. So Anissa Patel did this and some colleagues did this lovely sort of, you know, student selected component where they started looking at, they, they audited what was in one of the main medical textbooks, a number of textbooks, number of images of different skin tones and how little there were, and then started developing an online resource. So very practical. And as a program, we then started to source images, starting to build images of different skin tones and actually changing the way we talked about it. So when you talk about rashes, so Often in, in white skin, things will appear red and inflamed. And if you're on darker skins, that's not the case. So you change the way you emphasize it. So actually you talk about inflammation as being warmth because that's something that's universal. And then say in darker skin tones, you won't see it. In the light skin tones, you will. So you get very practical examples and then including it in the assessment. Also started, so we have often use simulated patients in uh, and actual patients in, in clinical exams. So then going out and trying to increase the uh, diversity across the board of, of, of people who are, um, you know, turning up and doing our exams. So people are experiencing that. And, and more recently, I've had some work going on around communication skills, again, looking at communication skills with people from different backgrounds. Because, again, one of the skills a doctor's needs is you'll go and work in a different part of the, you know, even here, you often need to either use a translator or English is the first language. But introducing that as a concept and something they need to be aware of, need to recognise that actually communicating when English isn't your first, isn't the first language of a patient involves an additional set of skills. And they say the communication skills team are looking at work around that. Uh, those are those are certainly examples. Actually, another thing I'd say that Jenny Harden, again, to name checking name checking her again, but again, introduced in year one a kind of really explicit introduction to health disparities. And I think the challenge for us as a program will be making sure we reintroduce that in other locations in the program. So again, what we've looked at is in the so they have a clinical portfolio in the clinical year. So this is a student-led portfolio. It's demonstrating their engagement with the program, patients they've seen. One of the things we're explicitly asking students to do in that when they see in cases and they're writing up case summaries is that they think about does this case link to health disparities um, and, and, and to them to, to and that would include issues relating to equality, diversity and inclusivity and even issues relating to their experience of it. So if they've experienced something in that clinical environment that relates to it, particularly with a particular case, they can reflect on that there and also encouraging those um, in their professions and reflections as well as they develop and how they think about that. So those are kind of all practical examples of things that have been going on in the programme. And, and I think it's, 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 it's lots of different things, I think, is what you're going to need to do to make the change to the programme. It's going to take time. It's obviously incremental. It's not going to be overnight and it requires homework um, as well on the part of the lecturer and the clinician. If somebody listening to the podcast was saying, oh, I, I really am quite interested in this, but I don't know where to start. Any advice you might give them? Well, I'll get, you asked for that. So I, the, the, the bit that's been very good, um, I have to say, is a series of articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, usually under the Medicine and Society. So they've had, so obviously it's an American-based journal, so it obviously has a very much a US focus on it. But I don't think that makes it, um, you know, it, it's still very relevant. And it's, and it's on both sides. You know, it's, it's a kind of, it's the spectrum of views around it. So there's a series of articles there looking at, health disparities, the role of, of race and ethnicity in medicine being fan fantastic. And there's a, one particular one, so in my own field, which is around estimated glomerular filtration rates. So that's how well your kidneys work. And we use it. It's The labs calculate it. And the, the equation that's used in the labs in the UK and in many, many labs in America has a correction if you're black. 
because of a study that was done that showed that the glomerular filtration rate um, was higher in black patients they looked at, so they corrected it by a certain number. And it's a really nice balanced article because it's a contro controversial area because if you, it's, a, it's an estimate and it means that certain things, that, so for example, in the US, it might limit access of black patients to renal transplantation because you may only be listed once your EGFR is below a certain level. So it's a very good, it's a really just an excellent balanced article which says, this is the consequences if you change it. If you remove that, what happens? If you keep it, what happens? And thinking about that. So I think that's been very useful. And what we've using that in the program is my colleague, Brian Conway, uh, and Rob Hunter, both nephrologists, are developing a sort of small uh, lecture presentation for the students. So they've got, this is what the EGFR is, this is how it comes about, and these are the consequences both ways. And uh, but actually my favourite, I'll change this, is this book. So it's Ivan Hannaford, Race, um, the History of an Idea in the West. Because I think, it was, it's, I, I haven't finished all of it, I kind of sample chapters, but actually the first chapter in it was just, uh, when I put it, was I starting to put together the grand round, I was really interested in the idea of where race came, the concepts comes from. And I come from a, a, a sort of generation of people who have probably given a sort of biological deterministic version of race rather than a socially determined identity that changes over time. And I think reading that and realising that actually it's a very modern concept, modern in a historical sense. So something that comes in around two to three hundred years ago, um, but, but someone talking about it, how in ancient times they did not have that concept didn't exist and then how it comes to evolve with time. And then so just, a, you, know, I, 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 you know, I read a bit about the background about Ivan Hannaford, this clear labour of love on his part is a lovely book just full of so much information the sort of thing you would love to have more time to sample and read so it's just a fantastic example and then that led me on to other things from particularly reading sort of various articles around Linnaeus and then how this whole concept of race comes to be and I found what has been really helpful is going into meetings with colleagues and then just being able to challenge it in that way and say actually you know most of what happens around people around ethnicity and health outcomes relates to the world they live in not to do with the sort of genetic deterministic elements of it not that genetic ancestry isn't important that it is it has relevance to medicine still you can look at the two things but you need to think differently about race i found it it empowered me to do that because until i had that kind of evidence and information and sociological evidence the sort of thing you don't read necessarily as a physician that's i found something that just enabled me to feel very confident about why we should make these changes to the program so uh, yeah that, that probably that's probably a bit heavy for people but it is a really excellent read and i think there's a particular first chapter i think is just sort of eye-opening thank you very much david for your time and your thoughts we appreciate it and we'll make sure to include your reading list um, recommendations to the listeners Thank you. Thanks a lot.